Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic historian specializing in the classical and medieval periods. Brendan McGuire received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level, and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College, his alma mater. Dr. McGuire has been a frequent presenter for the Institute of Catholic Culture and is also one of our Magdala Apostolate professors, helping educate women religious in the faith of the church. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Brendan McGuire. So hello to everyone, thanks for coming out. I know it's a cold, dark, rainy night, and uh, hello to everyone watching online. Um, so we're here to talk about the coming of Jesus tonight, right? It's, it's the Advent season, so we enter into our spiritual preparation for the coming of Christ, the incarnation of our Lord. I think it's important also to have a certain amount of, of intellectual preparation for this. Obviously, spiritual preparation is most important. Uh, but intellectually, we have to remember that uh, the church for, for centuries, for centuries, has tried to develop um, and, and to, to, to contemplate the mystery of Christ's incarnation in a whole variety of ways, the, theologically first and foremost, but also philosophically, historically, and culturally. The incarnation of Christ can be looked at from, uh, from so many different angles, right? And I would like to look at it from the angle of both salvation history and secular history. So you see, for the fathers of the early church, for the fathers of the fourth century, for figures like Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, there really was no distinction between secular and salvation history. Right? For Eusebius of Caesarea uh, and other fourth century church fathers, they were living at a time when the Roman Empire had become a vehicle for the evangelization of the Mediterranean. No longer an obstacle, no longer a persecutor of the church, the Roman Empire of the fourth century had become uh, a vehicle, in fact, for evangelization and for the Christianization of the Mediterranean world. So their view of church history is interesting. Uh, these fourth century church fathers, they tended to see, obviously, Christ coming as the incarnate Son of God is taken for granted. Christ comes as the incarnate Son of God. He comes as the Davidic King, as the fulfillment of Old Testament provinces, and as the founder of the church, the new Israel, the fulfillment of the 66th chapter of Isaiah, right? On the other hand, though, on the other hand, though, fourth century church fathers tended to look at the formation of the Greco-Roman world as, in and of itself, a providential project, a divine project. They tended to look at the formation of a world that was united by Greek culture and by Roman statecraft, a world that was at peace at the time of Christ's incarnation. They tended to see all the historical circumstances that coalesced into that world, that Greco-Roman world. They tended to see that as a divine project and not merely one of human origin. Right? They tended to see that uh, the universalized learned culture of the Greeks and the political framework of the Pax Romana, which united the world at the time of the Incarnation, uh, that these were providential acts. Right? So it's fascinating. When you look at the development of, of Greek culture and philosophy, right? Greek philosophy, of course, becomes the church's own philosophy. It's born and incubated in ancient Athens and the world of the ancient Greek poles. It's spread abroad in the conquest of Alexander and the Hellenistic period, and of course embraced by Rome. And this is what's fascinating about Rome. The Romans knew that Greek culture was superior to their own. The Romans knew that Greek culture was the best. And this is why, even though Roman achievements in so many fields, Roman achievements in, in sculpture and literature, poetry, rhetoric, architecture, science, medicine, philosophy, you name it, Roman achievements in all these fields uh, are not inconsiderable, right? They're, they're fantastic. And yet, Roman achievements in these fields tend to be derivative from Greek models. They tend to be overshadowed by their Greek prototypes, right? What's the prototype for the great epic? 
I mean, the Aeneid's a great epic. The Aeneid's a great epic, isn't it? But it's obviously derivative from Greek models. It's inspired by Greek models, which tend to overshadow it. The same could be said for a lot of Roman architecture, sculpture, rhetoric. Uh, the philosophy of Cicero, of course, is, is both inspired by and overshadowed by the philosophy of the Stoics, um, you know, who, who were Cicero's um, forebears. So it's fascinating. The Romans had enough insight to realize that the Greeks were the best when it came to the intellectual life and when it came to cultural scientific things. Um, however, there's one thing that the Romans were the best at. There's one area in which the Romans excelled far beyond the Greeks, and that was practical statecraft, right? Practical, pragmatic statecraft. This was, if you will, the Romans' charism. Uh, I don't think Eusebius would use the word charism in this sense, but if he could, he, he would, right? If, if the Romans have a charism in the ancient world, it's statecraft, right? So when we look at the origins of the Roman state, it's actually a fascinating, fascinating arc, narrative arc, that takes Rome from being a tiny village in central Italy to being mistress of the Mediterranean world. And, you know, th there's sort of, um, I, I think, a, a common misconception about Rome's rise to a position of hegemony in the Mediterranean world. The misconception is that Rome was a, a involved in a deliberate policy of conquest and expansionism. That's only really true about the, the last period of Rome's expansionism. The, the, the real heart of Rome's expansion in the Middle Republican period was reluctant expansion. Right? Rome is, has been characterized by the great historian A.H.M. Jones as a reluctant conqueror. I always tell my students that it's not like the Romans are sitting around saying, what are we going to do today? I don't know. Let's try to take over the world or something like that. It's, it's not exactly what's going on. In fact, Rome's strength as a conqueror was precisely the fact that Rome didn't do that. I mean, how many, how many ephemeral, short-lived empires have been created by men who set out as intentional conquerors, right? Alexander the Great's empire fell apart, you know, half an hour after he died. Um, you know, the, the empire of Genghis Khan, uh, of course, split up into chunks very soon after his death. Uh, you know, the, the Golden Horn and the Ilkhans and all of that. C can you find me an empire that is the product of deliberate and rapid conquest that then lasts as long as Rome lasts. I can't, I can't think of one, right? Um, you know, maybe if you see the Islamic conquests bearing fruit in the Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates, I don't know. In general though, in general though, Rome's strength as a power comes not from conquest, but from intentional and highly intelligent statecraft. So it's fascinating, the, the early Republican period in Rome lasts from around 509 BC to around 287. Uh, and this is a period in which Rome goes through remarkable constitutional development. It's constitutional development which is remarkable uh, because it's very bitter, it's very intense. It involves a political battle between the, the, the two orders of society in Rome, which are the patricians and, of course, the plebeians. So who are the patricians? You know, the patricians are an elite coalition of noble families who had expelled the kings of Rome in 509 and founded the Republic. But the problem is the patricians are the sole repository of Rome's unwritten law. They have sole access to political offices, magistracies, to the Senate, and to the priesthoods. So the problem is, if you're a plebeian, life is tough in the early republic. Uh, the vast majority of society was, of course, plebeian. And plebeian, plebeians, no matter how wealthy, uh, no matter how prominent they were, uh, they found themselves in a situation where they had no political representation, no access to the halls of power, no one whose job it was to defend their rights, uh, and of course not even a law that they could appeal to. Uh, plebeians were subject to arbitrary arrest, the confiscation of their property, being drafted in the army to, to fight wars you know, against the Samnites and the Sabines and other local tribes, wars which benefited the patricians exclusively. Uh, so, of course, in this type of environment, in any other state, you might expect some kind of violent revolution to take place. Uh, you might expect political bloodshed. You might expect civil war. You might expect the radical overthrow of the Constitution. And yet, in the case of Rome, quite remarkably, this is precisely what doesn't happen. Instead, Rome demonstrates, in a powerful way, I think, its, its unique genius, its unique gift for statecraft in the way in which the patricians and the plebeians aggressively iron out compromise after compromise with, with one another throughout the whole period of the early republic. Uh, the plebeians had very little leverage at first. All right, they started out by going on strike. 
in 494 BC. You have the, the first secession of the plebs when the plebeian army refused to fight in a war and the patricians had to sort of cajole them back, give them concessions. The first concession is the establishment of the tribunate, right? Actually establishing a political magistracy, magistracy whose job it is to advocate on behalf of the plebeians, all right? The next big concession came in the middle of the fifth century BC with the establishment of written law, right? The laws of the 12 tables, which gives all Romans a law that they can appeal to and be governed by. As the early Republic wore on, the plebeians won virtually every political battle that they fought. They fought for access to political offices, access to the Senate, uh, and finally they won the right to, to pass laws by plebiscite in the year 287. So you ask yourselves, wow, by 287 BC, is Rome a democracy like Athens was? And the answer is, of course, no. And this is part of the genius of Rome. That change was, although it was bitterly fought, right, e each change is the product of, of a bitter political debate. Nevertheless, the ultimate product is a state which is uh, very much a mixed constitution. It, it's not a full-blown howling democracy like Athens was. Uh, that would have been a very radical change. Instead, what, what basically happens is you go from a very small, uh, very small circle of aristocrats to a slightly larger circle of aristocrats, effectively, as the, you know, the patricians admit certain plebeian families into the ruling class, into the senatorial elite, and it becomes more of a mixed aristocracy, if you will. So after 287, we enter into quite a different period in Roman history. Between around 287 and 146 BC is when the Romans fought the wars which made Rome mistress of the Mediterranean. And, and especially in these early wars, in these third century BC wars, where Rome finds itself finally going up against big league military opposition, right? Rome finds itself going up against Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, right? Who's one of the most talented generals of that generation after Alexander, who deploys all the accoutrement of, of Hellenistic warfare, including elephants and Macedonian phalanxes and the whole nine yards. Rome finds itself going up against Carthage, right? The first Punic War between 264 and 241 BC. The second Punic War between 218 and 201. And in these wars in the third century BC, first against Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, and later against Carthage, the theme I think that's interesting is that Rome wins these wars not because of military superiority, right? Rome is, in fact, inferior militarily, generally speaking, to these opponents. I mean, who is Rome going up against? Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus. First time the Romans have ever fought uh, against a big league uh, opponent. And uh, the, whole, the whole war against Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, kind of happens accidentally. They fall into it in 282 BC. Um, they get into a little quarrel with some Greeks in southern Italy, and the Greeks get on the phone and they call in Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus. Uh, Pyrrhus invades Italy with a massive army, including war elephants, and the Romans are like, oh great, I guess we have to fight this guy now, right? and they lose the first battle, and they lose the second battle, but somehow the Romans win the war. And the question is why? What is it about Rome that allows it to, to lose battles and win wars in the third century BC? And the answer is the genius for statecraft, right? So how, can, can we put more meat on those bones? Sure. When Pierce the king of Epirus invades Italy in 281 BC, he's expecting something to happen. He's expecting what would happen in the Greek world, right? If a liberator shows up with an army, all the subject cities throw off the yoke and open their gates and welcome the liberator, right? That's precisely what would happen in the Greek world because Greek city-states and Hellenistic kings, they tended to oppress their subjects, right? If, if you were the, the ruling city-state, uh, if you were the, the hegemonic city-state, that was kind of standard practice and your subjects would take the first opportunity to throw off the yoke and assist your enemies. Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, comes to Italy, and he finds quite the opposite happens, right? Pyrrhus shows up. He's like, hey, guys, you ready to throw off the yoke? And everyone's like, nope. No throw off yoke. No. We're not opening our gates. Why? Why? Because unbeknownst uh, to Pyrrhus, Rome, for decades and decades, had been pursuing an unprecedented and unique approach to its subject cities, an approach that, that um, historians of ancient Rome refer to as incorporation, right? the very skillful and clever incorporation of subject cities into the Roman body politic. 
And this is very cleverly done. You know, certain limited citizenship rights were handed out on occasion. Sometimes uh, something that was called citizenship without the vote, civitas sine suffragio, they called it. Uh, sometimes fuller citizenship rights. Sometimes the planting of colonies of Roman citizens in the midst of, of subjects, whatever. It, it was a very skillfully created patchwork of city-states who all saw themselves as belonging somehow to the Roman body politic and having a share in the common good of Rome. As a result, uh, you know, Pyrrhus's victories really do him no good. Uh, Rome's subjects refused to throw off the yoke. Eventually, finally, Pyrrhus was defeated in 275 BC at the Battle of Beneventum and had to evacuate Italy. Now, here we go with Rome as a reluctant conqueror. Rome has just fought off an invader and now finds itself suddenly holding the bag in southern Italy. Now Rome has been brought down into southern Italy where it comes directly into conflict with Carthage, right? Leads to the First Punic War from 264 to 241. Now the First Punic War, there, there is some fascinating Roman military genius in the First Punic War as they, they developed the ability to fight naval warfare despite, despite having no navy at the start of the war. I mean, they had, well, maybe they had, I don't know, like the Canadian Navy or something like that, but they, they had virtually no navy at the start of the First Punic War. And, uh, and yet somehow managed to beat Carthage on its own element. After all, Carthage was a Phoenician colony. Uh, Phoenicians were good at three things in the ancient world. Inventing alphabets, putting babies in fireplaces, and naval warfare, right? And uh, so the, the Romans, amazingly, they, they beat the, these Phoenician, these <laughs> descendants of Phoenician colonists, these Carthaginians, they beat them on their own element. Um, there's actually uh, some speculation by historians that more men died at sea it's possible that more men died at sea in the First Punic War than died at sea in World War II, um, depending on how you, you count. A lot of that was weather-related because the ships weren't very seaworthy. But remarkably, Rome finds itself by the middle of the third century BC reluctantly assuming greater and greater levels of responsibility for ever-widening swaths of territory in the Western Mediterranean world. Of course, the Rome's victory in the First Punic War, it, it leads to this sort of Treaty of Versailles type of, of uh, conclusion to the war, where Carthage was economically crippled and forced to pay you know, crushing war reparations. And obviously, what do those things lead? They always lead to the next war, right? It leads directly to the Second Punic War from 218 to 201. And this is, of course, the war that involves Hannibal, right? And uh, we all know that Hannibal was the greatest military mind of the third century, right? Hannibal was a battlefield tactician that no Roman general could really figure out how to beat. As long as Hannibal had his veterans there, um, psh, no, nobody could touch Hannibal on the battlefield. And yet the Romans, through the strength of their constitution, through the strength of their state, really, are able to outlast Hannibal and ultimately defeat him. Uh, the time of the Second Punic War, it's also the time when Rome first begins to expand into the Eastern Mediterranean because the Carthaginian ally, Philip V of Macedon, declared war on Rome in the midst of, uh, in the, midst of the Second Punic War, leading Rome into, subsequently into the First Macedonian War. This leads Rome into further conflicts with Hellenistic kingdoms, uh, with Pontus, with the Seleucids, etc. So we have to ask ourselves now, as far as the evolution of the Roman state is concerned, if we're Eusebius of Caesarea, we're looking at this and we're saying, here's the providential hand of God in action. God always knows what he's doing, says Eusebius. And so what's happening here is God painstakingly is bringing about a scenario in which the Mediterranean world will be united and be at peace under the benevolent guiding hand uh, of Roman political hegemony uh, and with the common idiom of Greek culture to unite the Mediterranean world, right? Sounds good, right? The problem is it's a really painful and messy process, right? Um, because Rome's republican constitution was hardly suited for the administration of vast overseas territories. Uh, the case of Rome, it, it's a fascinating case study in how a republican constitution and republican political traditions um, are basically going to be placed under the burden of administering vast overseas territories and being involved in lengthy foreign wars. And this is a burden that Rome's republican constitution ultimately cannot bear, right? So how so? Why is this the case? Well, to, to put some more flesh on that, I think we have to think of it this way. Rome in the early Republic had a citizen army, all right? And by a citizen army, we mean that literally, right? You, you had to have more than 
more than goodwill and a pulse to join the Roman army, right? Um, you had to not only be a Roman citizen, you had to be a landholder belonging to the sixth census class or above. You had to have a farm that produced an in annual income of 3,000 sesterces or more, right? So the idea is that the backbone of the army, the backbone of the voting class, the backbone really of the republic was a class of men who were independent landholders, right? Independent freeholders who were not rich, right? We're not talking about, you know, huge landlords or, or the, the very, very wealthy elite, the 1%. Those people tend to be good at avoiding military service, right? Just ask Bill Clinton. Um, but the, you know, in, in the Roman Republic, the backbone of the army, the backbone of the army is in fact independent freeholders who are barely above this threshold, right, of, of having a farm that can fund their participation in the military, right? Now, military pay is introduced sometime in the Middle Republic, but still, there's a property qualification for joining the military. You, you had to be a landholder to join the Roman army. And there's a lot of reasons for this. I think the most obvious reason is that landed men, farmers, uh, who, who are citizen soldiers, they have, obviously, a, a stake in things, that they have an invested stake in the common good of the Roman body politic. Their loyalty to the Republic cannot be subverted. Right? It can't be subverted by an ambitious commander who promises them things. Uh, it can't be subverted by you know, opportunities to turn against the state or something like that. The, the, the Republic is all that they have. Right? They're, they're landholders. They're landed. They're invested in it. And so, at least in theory, their loyalty, at least in theory, is less susceptible to being subverted, say, than the loyalty of if you had an army of homeless or landless men who had nothing to lose. Right? That's the idea. Uh, the problem is that having an army of landed men, having an army of landholders, it really, really works as long as all your wars are short and local, right? Because then you could do what they did in the ancient Mediterranean world, which is you, you plant in the fall and the growing seasons in the winter and you harvest in the spring and you fight in the summer, right? So if it's, it's June, you've had your harvest, and you want to go for three weeks and fight the Samnites, you know, just for fun, that's fine. You can do that, right? The, the independent freeholder man, he's, he got his harvest all stacked up. He says goodbye to his wife. See you later, honey. I'll be back in three weeks. I'm going to go fight the Samnites, right? Goes and fights the Samnites. If he survives, he comes back. It's all good. It's all good, right? This model doesn't work when you're talking about lengthy foreign wars uh, or when you're talking about deployments overseas, you know, that, that last for years. Think about it. There's a huge difference. There, there's an utterly huge difference between being deployed for three weeks to fight the Samnites in, in the Apennines and being deployed for, you know, five years to go fight against Mithridates, the king of Pontus, right? There's a massive difference there. So a farmer says, uh, says goodbye to his wife. See you later, honey. I'm going to go fight Mithridates, the king of Pontus. I'll be back in five years. Um, so what does she do? She goes into debt. She tries to keep working the farm. Uh, she does her best, you know, but at the end of the day, the burdens become too much. Uh, she loses the farm because of debt. She goes into the city because in the city of Rome, they have welfare, right? So she goes in for the grain dole, goes into the city. Guy comes back from the war, goes back to his farm, and uh, there's a big sign on the gate identifying this farm as now the property of some wealthy senator who was giving out loans for free while he was gone, right? He loses his farm. He goes to join his wife in the city. Now, what has the guy lost? He's lost everything. He, he's lost not only his land. He's lost his social status. He's lost his right to vote. He's lost his ability to serve in the military. And this is happening across the board because of the burden of foreign wars. When you're fighting wars against the kings of Macedon and the Seleucids and Jugurtha, the king of the Numidians, and these wars last year after year after year, right? The burden of long service in those wars and service in the provinces decimates that class of men who are the backbone of the Republican system. They all become the urban poor, right? There's more to it than that. There's another dynamic here. So that, that backbone of, if you will, to, to use a, a bad phrase, uh, an inaccurate phrase, the middle class, right? The, the, the crushing burden imposed on that class, which utterly decimates them, right? It's accompanied, of course, by the fact that the aristocrats are getting richer and richer and richer, right? The guys who are giving out the loans and then seizing the farms. It's a very, very tiny class of men 
who are becoming immensely richer as a result of the wars. They stock these farms with slaves. Of course, slaves are readily available and cheap because of Rome's success in foreign wars. And now you're having a transformation of society, which is imposing immense pressures in a whole, diff a whole variety of directions, right? Military recruitment is becoming more difficult. Uh, on the other hand, there's massive social and political pressure to solve the problem of the homeless veterans. So guess what? We move into the late republic, and all of the dysfunctional political dynamics of the late republic, which would cause Rome's republican system to collapse into the dictatorship of Julius Caesar and Octavian, all of those dynamics are, are sort of set in motion by this situation, right? So, I mean, how are we going to solve the problem? How are we going to solve the problem of the homeless veterans, disenfranchised veterans? Um, well, there's one way to solve it. You could just take that class of men and give them all back their land, right? Uh, and this is what the Gracchi brothers decide to do. If, if you remember the Gracchi brothers from school, of course, Tiberius Gracchus was a tribune in the year 133. Uh, an eloquent man, an empathetic man, Tiberius Gracchus was himself an aristocrat. He was of the bluest blood from a senatorial background. And uh, he made a tour of Italy prior to becoming tribune in the year 133. And he came back and he said, wow, the the, the foxes and wild beasts of Italy all have their lairs and their dens, but the soldier has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, the men who fought, conquered for Rome are left with nothing. They fought wars for the benefit of other men. So Tiberius Gracchus as Tribune, he tries to push through a, a land reform, right? A, a land reform, that's a good idea, right? What we'll do is we'll simply pass a law which imposes an upper limit on the amount of land that any man is allowed to own, right? You do that, then you strip away, you cull away the excess, carve it up into little plots, and hand it out to the disenfranchised veterans. Sound good? Sound good, right. Except <laughs> the aristocrats uh, who are going to be, uh, who they're going to have their style kind of cramped by this. Uh, they don't like the plan at all. And so they beat Tiberius Gracchus to death with chair legs in the Senate. Uh, so that's a non-starter. That's going nowhere. Ten years later, Tiberius Gracchus's brother, Gaius Gracchus, he tries a very similar plan. He tried to build a bigger political coalition to push through a land reform. Um, but Gaius Gracchus has no better luck. Uh, he ends up uh, being killed in mob warfare incited by angry aristocrats. Right? So land reform, it's not going to be how this happens. How do we solve the problem of the disenfranchised veterans? Well, there's only one other way. There's only one other door that you can open, and that is you can simply allow homeless and landless men to serve in the army. All right. Open up military recruitment to non-landholders. That's, that's really the only other solution to this problem. And that's the solution that would be adopted famously by Gaius Marius. Right? So Gaius Marius is a guy who becomes famous during what we call the Jugurthine War in North Africa. Uh, Gaius Marius it comes from a really interesting background. He's one of the very, very few commoners, genuine commoners, who actually rise to become politicians in the Roman Republic. I can really only think of two. Uh, Gaius Marius being one, and of course, Cicero being the other. Um, so you look at the scenario here. Gaius Marius uh, rises to prominence because of his success in the Jugurthine War. Uh, he captures Jugurtha, the rebellious king of the Numidians, in 107 BC. Uh, he becomes immensely popular as a result. He's unconstitutionally elected to the consulate um, six years in a row uh, at the end of the second century BC, which it, it kind of shows us how Rome's republican constitution is beginning to fray at the edges, at least. But it's during this time that Gaius Marius is able to implement his famous Marian reforms. And the Marian reforms are built on this backbone of allowing landless men into the army. So that's, that's a great idea, isn't it? Great idea. Now you have an army of men whose loyalties are potentially more susceptible to subversion, right? And this becomes the key in the first century before Christ. This is what's ultimately going to catalyze the collapse of Rome's republican system into an imperial system, right? So, how does this begin to happen? Well, we have to understand Gaius Marius had his enemies in Roman politics. 
Gaius Marius was uh, a representative of that political faction that we call the Populares, right? Think about it. Gaius Marius was a, a commoner himself. Uh, according to legend, he was the son of a butcher. That, that might be a slight exaggeration, because he married well. He married into the aristocracy, and he became a general. So either way, he, he's a commoner in some sense, at least. Uh, and Gaius Marius very much sympathized with the populace and with the common folk. So what does he do? Uh, Gaius Marius becomes the, the sort of the, the champion of the people, if you will, the populist hero in Roman politics. And at the other pole, at the other end of the political spectrum, you have Marius's political enemy, Sulla. All right. Now, Sulla, very, very interesting guy. Sulla had served under Marius in the Jugurthine War, and he hated Marius because Sulla thought that Marius got all the credit for capturing Jugurtha, the king of the Numidians, when Sulla felt like he was actually responsible for Rome's success in that war. Uh, Sulla also had contempt for Marius because Sulla's background was the polar opposite. Sulla was an aristocrat. Sulla was from the elite of the elite. Sulla had the bluest blood in the world. And so Sulla had utter contempt for this commoner, and he had an acute sense of the threat to the senatorial aristocracy that was posed by populism. Right? Politicians who were populist in their outlook, they saw the people as the, the most convenient springboard to power. And Sulla said, this is, the ambitions of these men are going to tear apart the republic. Right? The republic is founded on the Senate and the privileges of, of the Senate and the senatorial elite. And these populists just have to be dealt with. Right? So, Matters came to a head for Marius and Sulla in the year 88. In 88 BC, both Marius and Sulla were appointed to the command of the same army. Sulla was appointed by the Senate, where his allies were. Marius was appointed by the plebeian assembly. And so it became a race to see who would get there first and read himself in as commander of the army. Sulla was younger, so he got there first. And uh, he became commander of the army in 88. But instead of doing what he was supposed to do and taking the army to Asia Minor to fight Mithridates, the king of Pontus, Sulla instead turned around and marched on Rome. He marched on Rome, drove Marius and his populists from power, and then he went east to fight Mithridates, the king of Pontus. After five years in the east, Sulla came back in 83, and he marched on Rome a second time. Now, we have to understand the gravity of what Sulla has just done. This has never happened before in Roman history. You've never had a Roman military commander who could subvert the loyalty of a Roman army to the state. The problem is, precisely, it, it's Marius's reforms that caused this. For the first time, you have an army of men whose fundamental loyalty is not to abstract ideals or to the Republic or to the Senate. The fundamental loyalty of the army is to its commander, whoever its commander happens to be, in this case, Sulla. So Sulla uses the army as a political tool. This is a first in Roman history. This sets the stage for all the crazy developments of the late Republic, where you see other men following Sulla's example, right? I mean, think of it, Pompey, Crassus, Julius Caesar, what do they all have in common? They all have in common a willingness and an ability to use the army as a political tool to use the army as your trump card in any argument with the Senate, to use the army as something that trumps the Constitution, the rule of law, everything, to use the army as a vehicle for the ambitions of individual men. So there's a deep irony here. There's a profound irony because Sulla was a conservative. Sulla was a defender of senatorial prerogatives and traditions. Sulla saw himself, when he marched on Rome the second time in 83, Sulla saw himself as the restorer of the rule of law, the restorer of the Senate, the restorer of the Republic. There's, there's a profound irony here. Sulla made himself dictator, and uh, he spent years implementing political reforms. Uh, he stripped away the powers of the tribunes, because he saw the tribunate as a, a bastion of populism. The whole purpose of tribunes is to defend the rights of the common people, right? So uh, Sulla wanted to make it so that no ambitious or intelligent man would ever become a tribune again. And uh, so he, he stripped away the tribune's power to veto legislation. He stripped away the tribune's power to propose legislation. But most importantly, he forced through a law which 
prohibited tribunes from ever subsequently holding political office. So that's right there, that does it, because now no ambitious man is ever going to become a tribune. They can never hold any other office again. All right. Sulla enlarged the Senate and enhanced its powers. In the year 79, Sulla felt like he had done good work. He had not only restored the Senate to a position of control, he had firmly settled power in the hands of a reconstituted and expanded Senate. He had taken measures in his mind to insulate the state from the, the destabilizing effects of political populism and the ambitions of, of these dangerous men. On the other hand, Sulla had massacred thousands of people in order to do this. Sulla's famous policies of proscription and terror were part of his implementation of it. But here's the irony, my friends. This is, this is the deep irony. Sulla's ultimate legacy would not be his constitutional reforms. Sulla retired as dictator in 79. I guess even dictators get tired. Uh, he died in 78 BC. Sulla's constitutional reforms would be gone within a decade. But Sulla did have a legacy. Sulla's legacy was the example that he set, right? And here's, here's the irony, right? You have Sulla the conservative, Sulla the partisan of the Senate and the rule of law, who sets an example that would be followed by men who were not partisans of the Senate and the rule of law. He sets an example that would be followed by men of naked ambition, right? Like Pompey and Crassus and Julius Caesar. Now, these are extraordinary men, right? Uh, these men, you know, as, as Shakespeare famously says, they, they bestride this narrow world like a colossus, right? Uh, and it's an interesting time in Roman history because even though it looks like Sulla has firmly vested power back in the hands of the senatorial aristocracy, nevertheless, aristocracies, as, you know, as a group of men, they tend to be otios, uh, they tend to be intent on short-term thinking, preserving their privileges and their luxuries mainly. Cicero, the last great defender of republicanism in Rome, Cicero called these aristocrats the gentlemen of the fish ponds, right? Because their, their principal preoccupation was with contests that they would have with, them, with each other where they would try to breed ornamental fish, right? So if the aristocrats are preoccupied with luxurious pursuits of this nature, entertainments, and fish ponds, how are they going to stand up against the naked ambition and will of men like Julius Caesar, right? It's not really going to happen. Cicero was the one guy in this whole period sort of standing athwart the tide of history yelling stop. But he's up against a lot. Cicero is up against not only the skill and ambition of men like Caesar, uh, Cicero is up against um, historical and contextual realities that he himself can't really change. It's simply a fact. The burdens associated with governing vast overseas territories are too heavy for Rome's republican constitution to bear, right? It's going to collapse under the weight of all of this. Uh, and it's going to collapse under the weight of this, partly because the, these, these vast you know, vistas of overseas wars, they open up tremendous avenues for the ambition of these men, men like Pompey. So Pompey is a, is a great case in point. Uh, Pompey became famous in 78, right after the death of Sulla, because he, he crushed an insurrection in Italy, he crushed an insurrection in Spain, he was given a triumph in 71 BC, uh, he, he helped put down the Spartacus slave rebellion in the 70s, uh, helped crucify 6,000 slaves all along the Appian Way, sending a powerful message, and Pompey became consul for the year 70, along with his friend Crassus. All right. So Pompey and Crassus, in a sense, two very, very different men. Pompey was one of the first guys to realize the potential for using the army as a political tool. Between 66 and 63 BC, Pompey went on a grand campaign. He conquered northern Asia Minor. He conquered Syria and Palestine, the Seleucid heartland. He went on a campaign of conquering, annexing, reorganizing. Uh, he conducted naval campaigns against the pirates of the Mediterranean. Right? And so by 63 or so, it looks like Pompey has an army and a navy who are thoroughly loyal to him. Right? And this is something that other people in Rome are, are highly, highly concerned about, including Cicero. Cicero becomes consul for the year 63, right, right when Pompey is coming back from his military campaign. And they try to persuade Pompey to disband his army, and they tell him, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of your veterans and all of that. All right? So it's interesting, right? In 60 BC, 
is ambitious individual men who have a, a firm grasp, I think, on the opportunities that are available to them here. They form what we call the first triumvirate. Pompey and Crassus on the one hand, and Julius Caesar, right, is the third man in the triumvirate. And they all have something that they want in 60 BC. Pompey wants his veterans to be given land grants. Crassus wants better deals for tax farming and the exploitation of tax collection. And Julius Caesar wants to become consul. He wants to become consul for the year 59. So the three men collaborated with one another. They pulled all the strings that they could pull behind the scenes. They got Julius Caesar elected consul in 59. And then as consul, Julius Caesar began funneling everything he could funnel towards his cronies, right? He gave Crassus a great, a great tax farming deal. Uh, he gave Pompey generous land grants for his veterans. Now, people always raise their hand at this point and they ask, well, wait a minute, aren't there two consuls? There's supposed to be two consuls, right? So Julius Caesar is one consul. Who's the other consul? The other consul is a guy named Bibulus. And uh, Bibulus was easy to intimidate. Why? Because Julius Caesar and Pompey had the army, right? So Bibulus was effectively kept under house arrest all through 59 BC, right? So we're looking at a time where the army has become a political tool and a vehicle for the naked ambitions of extraordinarily gifted men. Uh, Crassus, is one, Crassus comes to a, a tragic end in this period, in 53 BC, because Crassus had to sit there and watch as Pompey became a famous general, Julius Caesar became a famous general, and Crassus always wanted to be a famous general, right? All growing up, all he ever wanted to be was a famous general. But all he got to be was a rich guy. You know, Crassus still shows up on inflation-adjusted top 10 lists of the richest men in history. Uh, I think he, he's richer than Mitt Romney and Donald Trump put together, actually, adjusted for inflation. Um, so Crassus, of course, he had a family fortune. Uh, he made that many times over through tax farming and shady real estate deals where he would burn down people's houses and then buy them and flip them. And the, the, the guy just loved money. He had a total lust for money. But more than money, he really wanted to be a famous general. So in the year 55, he decided it would be a good idea to invade the Parthian Empire. And he invaded uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, of course, he didn't know what he was doing. To be a general, I think you have to have some training or experience or intelligence. Uh, Crassus didn't. And uh, so his army was defeated and he was captured by the Parthians in 53 BC. So the Parthians knew what to do with Crassus. They knew that he loved money so much that they, uh, they wanted to give him some. So they boiled up a pot of molten gold and they poured the molten gold down Crassus's throat. And that made him die. Um, but, but Crassus, it's, he, he did get to become famous in a sense because, you see, the Parthians are very Hellenized people. And one of the great things about Hellenic culture is drama, right? So the Parthians, they were going to do a staging of Euripides Bacchae. Uh, if you ever read Euripides Bacchae, the conclusion of Euripides Bacchae is the sparagmos, where the frenzied uh, women who are worshipping Bacchus, uh, they tear apart Pentheus, the king of Thebes, and rip him limb from limb. Uh, so if you're going to stage Euripides Bacchae, you need props. And the Parthians are like, oh, we don't have any props. What do we do? Oh, we've got Crassus. So they, they decapitated Crassus, and, and they used his head as a prop in Euripides Bacchae. So I always say he, he never got to be a famous general, but he got to be an actor, so good, good for him. Um, so Crassus is off the scene, right? By 50 BC, Julius Caesar is ready to emerge on the scene in a fascinating way. So what has Julius Caesar been up to? In 59 BC, he was the consul. And at the end of the consulate year, Julius Caesar decided that it was treat yourself day. He decided to treat himself to the governorship of two provinces. Julius Caesar made himself the governor of Cisalpine Gaul and Illyricum. This provided Julius Caesar with immense military resources, which he used to conquer Gaul. All right. He used to conquer Gaul north of the Alps in a brutal eight-year campaign between 58 and 50 BC. Now, I always ask my students, because my students are millennials, right? They're my students, you know, I'm finding an, an increasing generation gap between me and my students. I, I ask them, do you ever do things just to take pictures of it? Like, do you, do you ever do things like just so you can put pictures on social media? And they all start laughing and say, yes, yes. And I say, well, okay, just Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul is the sort of ancient world equivalent of that, right? Julius Caesar conquers Gaul so that he can write home about it. And write home about it 
speaking of himself in the third person, you know, like Ricky Henderson, right? It's like, well, Ricky thought Ricky would steal third base, and, and Ricky's pretty fast, so Ricky stole third base, right? So Julius Caesar's writing home to the Senate the whole time he's conquering Gaul, and, uh, and he's saying, and then, you know, Caesar did this, and, see, and, and then there was this remarkable situation where uh, the army was in a hopeless strait, but thank goodness Caesar was there, and Caesar was able to get them, in, right? So Caesar builds an enormous reputation for himself back home. He builds enormous prestige as he conquers Gaul. And there are some senators who are grumbling about this. A senator named Cato, who is the great-grandson of, of the more famous Cato from the second century BC, uh, who said that since Julius Caesar was waging offensive war in Gaul, he should be handed over to the Gauls for punishment. Uh, but of course, that wasn't going to happen. Julius Caesar completes his conquest of Gaul with immense macro-historical consequences, right? If you think about it, Julius Caesar's own intentions in the conquest of Gaul uh, were probably little more or less than the service of his own extraordinary ambition and his ego, right? But the results are so different. And this is why men like Eusebius would take a providential view of these things. The macro-historical significance of the conquest of Gaul is that continental Europe beyond the Mediterranean watershed is brought into the orbit of Greco-Roman culture, right? With immense significance for the future of Christianity, for the Middle Ages, where France becomes the eldest daughter of the church and really the heart of medieval Europe, right? And this certainly never could have been the case if it weren't for Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul, right? But in 50 BC, Julius Caesar is, he's ready to come back. He's ready to come back to Rome and, and come on the scene. The problem is, his enemies have planned to charge him with things, with criminal offenses. Uh, they plan to charge him with, uh, among other things, the fact that back when he was consul in 59, he had kept the other consul under house arrest. See, it's always dangerous to do these things that are technically illegal. Cicero has the same problem, right? He, he does a few things early in his political career that are, that are popular at the time, but are technically illegal. And his enemies always use it against him later, right? It's kind of like, like if you have a private email server, you know, or something like that. It's just, you, you never know. <laughs> you just never know, right? Um, so <laughs> keeping Bibulus under house arrest seemed like a great idea at the time. But then when Caesar wants to come back on the scene, uh, his enemies, which now include Pompey, who's decided he doesn't like Caesar anymore, uh, they're going to use this against him. They're going to have him arrested as soon as he sets foot in Italy. The problem is, Roman magistrates had immunity from arrest. But... Now that Julius Caesar's governorship has, been, has expired and it's not going to be renewed by the Senate, uh, Julius Caesar can't set foot in Italy without losing his immunity and, and being arrested. He's no longer a magistrate of any kind. So he says, ah, I have a solution for this. I'll run for consul. I'll run for consul for the year 49. Then I'll be immune from arrest again. That'll be great. Problem is, in order to run for consul, you have to be in the city of Rome. You can't run for consul in absentia. And Caesar writes to the Senate, and he says, hey guys, can I run for consul in absentia? And they're like, no. And he's like, please? And they're like, no. Uh, so now he has a real dilemma. He can't set foot in Italy without being arrested, but he can't regain his immunity from arrest unless he comes to Italy. So what do you do? What's the solution? The solution is you come to Italy with an army, right? And then no one can arrest you. So on the 11th of January of the year 49, Caesar famously crosses the Rubicon, and announces that the die has been cast. Alea yacta est. Now, the die had been cast in more ways than one. It's a very interesting pun in English. It's not a pun in Latin, but it's a pun in English to say the die has been cast. Uh, what Caesar said, alea yacta est, he meant that he had rolled the dice. He, he had thrown the dice. Um, but when you say the die is cast in English, you can mean something quite different. You can mean that the mold has been set, or the mold has become rigid, right? Um, and uh, in fact, both things are true. Caesar was taking a gamble by crossing the Rubicon. It was a gamble that he won. He defeated Pompey, drove Pompey into exile. Uh, Pompey took refuge with Ptolemy XII, uh, king of Egypt. Ptolemy XII uh, cut off Pompey's head, put it in a box, and priority mailed it back to Julius Caesar. Right? Um, so Caesar wins the gamble. He wins the civil war. But there's a sense in which, in a profound way, the mold has been set now. Although Caesar would be assassinated, the transition from republican government to an empire ruled by military commanders, that transition has become set in concrete now. 
and it's become set in concrete because of these deep historical circumstances that go far beyond the ambitions or the desires of individual men. All right. And perhaps this is why a providential view of history is so attractive to Christian thinkers like Eusebius. Right? Eusebius is looking back through history in the fourth century, and he's saying, look, the conversion of Constantine sets the stage for a transformation of Roman civilization into Christian civilization. Right? But Constantine would never have been in a position to do that if you hadn't had the transformation of the Roman world from republic to empire. And that ne really never could have happened the way it did if it hadn't been for the previous conquests of Alexander, the establishment of Hellenistic rule over the Eastern Mediterranean, the development of the Roman Republic, all of these other factors. So what Eusebius does is he looks back through history and he sees the hand of God preparing the Mediterranean world to receive the Messiah, the heir of David, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, the incarnate logos of the Father. All right. Eusebius sees the hand of God preparing the Mediterranean world through the agency of men, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and the whole development of the Roman world. Right. Now, it's a fascinating story, the way Eusebius writes it. The confluence of the story, the story of Second Temple Judaism with that of Greco-Roman antiquity is a fascinating one. But Christ became incarnate in a world that was at peace, in a world that was enjoying unprecedented peace, under the aegis of Rome, unprecedented cultural unity due to the prevalence of Greek culture, philosophy, and language in the Eastern Mediterranean. And this is the environment in which the church spreads. This is the environment in which the church puts down roots. And this is ultimately the environment in which the church, as it were, conquers Rome. So, thank you. Thank you, Dr. McGuire. All right, we have a question from Vanessa in Missouri asking, was the populist idea still in play during the reign of Augustus, and did this play into the decision of Pontius Pilate at all? Oh, the, the populist idea. Well, it's, it's a good question. Um, I would say it has little to do with Pontius Pilate in that that's not populism in this quite the same sense. Um, Pontius Pilate may have been motivated by a desire to prevent local unrest or to cultivate uh, a quality relationship with Jewish elites, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and that sort of thing. Um, it's not exactly political populism in, in quite the same sense as we were talking about in Rome um, because effectively the, the political populism, say, of a, a Marius or the political populism of a Julius Caesar or Pompey and Crassus, who actually undid um, Sulla's political reforms and all of that, um, it, it's, it's a political populism that's oriented towards actually undermining and changing the Constitution in fundamental ways, right? Um, so it, it's a political populism that's motivated by a desire to aggrandize oneself, advance one's political career uh, beyond the normal constitutional boundaries of what a political career was in Rome. And this is, this is why Cicero is, is such an enemy of these guys. He, he sees them as, as um, basically a, a deadly threat to constitutional government and to the Republic. So. Great. We have another one from Robert in Cincinnati who asks, in talking about how God set the stage for the coming of Christ through the expansion of Rome, could you please say when it was in this history that Roman roads, the Latin language, and such elements of that unified Roman culture came on the scene? Great. Um, so uh, as far as Roman roads are concerned, um, in the Eastern Mediterranean world, the, the good thing is they already had roads, right? So there, there are Roman roads in the sense that there's Roman improvements, mostly to pre-existing roads that go back to the Hellenistic time and, and all of that. Um, in the Western Mediterranean, the, the, the building of roads, it's a kind of an ongoing project as Rome's political hegemony expands. Uh, you know, so certainly, if you say, say in, in the first century BC, something like the Appian Way would give you a, a pretty comfortable thoroughfare up through the length of Italy. Um, as far as the Latin language is concerned, uh, even as the Roman Empire expanded, Latin is the language of the army, Latin is the language of law, um, 
But it's not so much the language, the universal language of learned men in the Roman Empire. In the Eastern Mediterranean, the, the universal language of learned men uh, was always Greek. Uh, there's other very important languages in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, such as Aramaic, Coptic, etc. Um, but the, the, the army was a real bastion of the Latin language, right? To go through military training, it was kind of like joining the French Foreign Legion. As Rome becomes an empire, and abandons this idea of the, the army of citizen landholders. They recruit soldiers from all four corners of the empire. And um, the army becomes a powerful vehicle of, of Romanization for military recruits. Hi. Can you discuss for a visitor to Rome where they could learn more about these subjects and encompassing both the Roman Forum and other sites? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. I think the, the best, the greatest tour guide in Rome is, is Liz Lev, a uh, famous art historian. Um, and uh, she, she actually teaches our, our students at the Christendom College Rome program in Rome. Uh, yeah, no, this is the thing. And if you're talking about as a visitor to Rome, finding a good, uh, a good tour guide, they're, they're not all created equal. Uh, I would actually plug a former student of mine, Joe Long. He recently founded a company called Pro Rome Tours. And uh, he's very, very good. He has a graduate degree from one of the pontifical universities, I think Santa Croce, uh, fluent in the language, has lived over there for years. And uh, that's kind of, am I, this isn't in response to your question? The sites, the places, the, the sites, the places, and their meaning. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess you, you mentioned the Roman Forum. There are a lot of ancient sites in Rome, the Colosseum. They're kind of overlaid, though, with late antique sites, medieval sites. Uh, Rome, Rome is it's kind of like Istanbul or Jerusalem in that respect. It's a very layered city from an archaeological point of view. So every site is filtered through, through those layers, right? Antiquity, Christianity, the Middle Ages, etc. Uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but... So. We have one from online from Tom from Arizona who asks, can you characterize Augustus's specific influence in preparing the world of peace? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Augustus's specific influence is effectively that he's the last man standing, right? Uh, from, from this gaggle of ambitious figures around the time of Julius Caesar uh, and the assassins of Julius Caesar, Augustus emerges actually as not really that auspicious of a figure. I mean, he's 18 years old or something at the time that Caesar was assassinated. Uh, he was skinny and sickly and, and undistinguished, and yet he pursued Caesar's assassins and their reputed allies uh, with a, a vigor and a viciousness that was extraordinary. And uh, he ended up being the last man standing from, from all the civil wars uh, and the, the war with Mark Antony. Uh, so effectively, when, when you finally get the Pax Romana, it's basically because the senatorial aristocracy accepts that government by a military dictator is better than civil war. All right, so in, in 27 BC, the Senate vests the imperium in Augustus, and that's when you have peace, right? The, the civil wars have been brought to an end, and, uh, and the Pax Romana has set in. So. Tom and Anne from Texas ask, Caesar seemed to be keenly aware of all the goings on in Italy and the surrounding region. Do you agree with the idea that it appears that he largely ignored the advent of Jesus and the brewing Jewish rebellion? Well, uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated before the advent of Jesus, um, you know, by about 45 years. So, um, yeah, it, it's not clear that he was really too aware of events in Syria and Palestine. Uh, it wasn't really at the center of, of his radar screen. So. Uh, who might rank with Cicero as an important man of letters and an important figure in government? I don't think anyone ranks with Cicero as a man of letters in Roman history. Uh, Cicero is the most extraordinary man of letters that Roman culture ever, ever produced, I think. Uh, he, he really is an extraordinary man. He was a true commoner uh, who was desperate to be an aristocrat. And uh, he is a man of extraordinary ability, and he strained every sinew and used every one of his God-given gifts as an orator and a defense attorney to, to socially climb up into the aristocracy. And then once he got there, he liked it so much that he dedicated himself to defending the privileges of the aristocracy uh, against people like Julius Caesar. Um, yeah, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a Roman who, who ranks with Cicero. Uh, certainly, as a man of affairs, 
Cicero is, is a much more problematic figure, I think, than as a man of letters and, and philosophy. Uh, Cicero, as a master of the Stoic philosophical tradition and, and a master of rhetoric, uh, he's an extraordinary figure. As a man of affairs, Cicero oftentimes tended to get the wrong end of the stick. And uh, even when he did something right, he tended to do things that were illegal. Uh, the Varine orations where he ended up having a governor of Sicily illegally sent into exile. Uh, the assassination of Catiline, which was illegal, and it, it came back to haunt Cicero uh, later on in his life. Um, so, yeah, as a man of affairs, of course, Cicero's life is more more tragic. Uh, as, a, as a man of perennial thought, though, I think he's, he's extraordinary. Dr. McGuire, uh, what are some good uh, books out there that cover this uh, very broad period of the Roman Republic in more depth and detail? Good question. So I, I'm a huge fan of A.H.M. Jones. I, I love A.H.M. Jones. Uh, so uh, as, uh, as a historian, Jones is deeply immersed in the primary sources. He even says in the preface to one of his books on late antiquity uh, that I don't read secondary sources because I don't have time. I'm too busy reading the primary sources, which is it's rare for a scholar to be able to say that and get away with it. Um, but I, I, would, I would direct people to, to A.H.M. Jones for um, root solid scholarship on these, on these things, especially statecraft and political matters. So. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. Oh, thanks, Danny. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.